Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we are going to talk about a new book that's out, and we have the author on the show, Dr. Jason Warner. So we are going to talk about the book, The Islamic State in Africa, The Emergence, Evolution, and Future of the Next Jihadist Battlefront. So I'm, first of all, very excited to have you on the show, Dr. Warner. So welcome to the Loopcast. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Chelsea. I really appreciate it. And for our listeners, Dr. Warner is an assistant professor at the United States Military Academy in West Point, and he's also an associate at the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. Uh, highly check out the work that they're doing over there because it's amazing, um, both at West Point and then CTC has some amazing research that is always being churned out. So um, I recommend that. And of course, I recommend the book. This book is just packed with information on the topic. So if you're interested in terrorism broadly or the Islamic State and specifically the Islamic, excuse me, the Islamic State in Africa, um, you will not be sad from reading this book because it's just packed with info. So um, yeah, we're just excited to have you on the show to talk about this, Dr. Warner. Uh, Yeah, thank you so much. So why don't we start off with um, why a book on the Islamic State in Africa in particular is important? Yeah, um, certainly. Well, uh, I'll also just, um, uh, again, reiterate my thanks for having me on the show and, and note that um, as a U.S. government employee, I just want to be uh, very upfront with uh, with any listener that uh, the, the opinions that I'm going to express are, are mine and mine alone and, and do not represent those of the U.S. government, uh, the U.S. Army or the Combating Terrorism Center. So um, my, my personal disclaimer there. Um, so the book, which I'll also uh, add another note, uh, is uh, I was the lead author on it, but I have three uh, folks who helped me tremendously on it. And I would like to start by just making sure that they get their due note. Uh, so this is Ryan O'Farrell, uh, Haney and Saibia, and um, Ryan Cummings. So this is a book that the four of us have been working on over the course, really, of the last four years. And so, Chelsea, to your question about why a book on the Islamic State in Africa is important. Uh, it, it, its uh, release, which was in December of 2021, uh, so it just came out, its release was um, one that unfortunately uh, was accompanied with, with more relevance, in fact, than, than we thought the book might have when we began writing it uh, in early 2018. Uh, so, so the short answer to why a book on the Islamic State in Africa is relevant, uh, I would argue, is that the Islamic State's presence in Africa has been one of the primary motors that has led the continent uh, to be one of the primary and arguably the primary locus for um, transnational Salafi jihadist activity uh, in the world today. Um, and what we can talk more about the various provinces or wilaya of the Islamic State in Africa, which is what the book centers on. Uh, but as some uh, colleagues and I, including Trisha Bacon, who's a professor at American University, have argued, really, um, and, and based on evidence from the United Nations and other international think tanks, Africa really is the new um, sort of locus of international um jihadism in terms of the the numbers of deaths uh, from groups associated with either al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. And so uh, to to your question, uh, the the Islamic State has been disproportionately um, responsible for for this violence and um, really has 
serve to catapult uh, the African continent into the global uh, limelight as a as a, a primary uh, location for this sort of violence. And on that point, to let our listeners know that might not know much about the Islamic State or the different provinces, the Wilayats, uh, what part of the African content do we see ISIS affiliates located in? Sure, great question. Uh, so, so the book really traces uh, the emergence and evolution of these various provinces of the Islamic State on the African continent uh, from their, their, their formal emergence in, in late 2014, the earliest ones, uh, to uh, the, the former Islamic State central leader's death, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, in October 2019. So really what our book tries to do is to give in-depth insight into the histories of uh, what are essentially eight formal Islamic State provinces in Africa and one uh, sort of would-be province in Tunisia. So, uh, Chelsea, to answer your question, um, the book's trajectory traces these provinces' emergence and evolutions chronologically. So the book starts uh, with the Islamic State's presence in Libya, which was uh, very profound uh, between 2014 and 2016, but has since waned pretty significantly. Uh, we then look at the Islamic State's presence in Algeria, uh, which was never particularly strong and contemporarily is, is pretty much non-existent. Uh, the book then moves to look at the Islamic State's uh, province in uh, the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt, where it retains uh, a very strong presence. Uh, we look at, as I mentioned, a, a would-be province, uh, a, a group that um, never has gained provincial status in Tunisia. And then we begin to move further south into uh, the Sahara and Sub-Sahara. So we then look at the Islamic State's West Africa province uh, in, in northeastern Nigeria in this sort of Lake Chad Basin. Um, we then look at the Islamic State West Africa province in the Sahel and some of these, uh, excuse me, in the Greater Sahara. And so some of these nomenclatures get a little bit tricky if you don't have a map in front of you. But um, here we're really looking at um, what is, has been known as the Islamic State in Greater Sahara. It's now a branch of the Islamic State West Africa province. And so this is um, at the intersection of uh, the, the, the tri-border region of Niger, Mali, and Burkina Faso. Uh, the book rounds out with looking at the Islamic State's presence in Somalia, uh, followed by the, the final two chapters that were a bit of a surprise for us to write, um, as the Islamic State declared provinces in um, Eastern DRC and Mozambique. So those are the places. Uh, they are extensive, and, and unfortunately, uh, th there are more of them than can be articulated in, in just a short moment of time here. Yeah, and I mean, before we started recording, we were talking about, at least I was mentioning the structure of the book, which is really great. And I'm looking at structures a lot with my own work lately. And by reading the book, it's it's like you just trace the trajectory of ISIS in Africa, the way you've structured it. And it's very like user-friendly, I guess that's the best way of putting it, but also very logical. And I just, I love that. So good job on that. Thank um, you. You're welcome. Yes. Why... I, or why ISIS in Africa in particular compared to other parts of the world, other continents, other regions? Why so much influence in Africa? Sure. No, it's a great question. So uh, as you mentioned, I work at the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point, and I was hired uh, 
because I'm an Africanist. So I have a, a PhD in African studies uh, from Harvard. And so I was hired directly out of grad school to beef up uh, the Combating Terrorism Center's Africa profile in uh, essentially mid 2016. Uh, and at that point, the Islamic State um, was really, I mean, primarily um, an, uh, an Iraq and Syrian based organization, uh, despite the fact, of course, that there had been Al Qaeda influence, um, you know, in, on the African continent in the form of Al-Shabaab um, and AQIM uh, for years prior, of course. Um, but um, essentially, there has always been, um, rightly or wrongly, in, in the United States government, this sort of uh, trepidation about the, the potential dangers uh, of transnational jihadi movements, particularly tied to Al-Qaeda, uh, but, but increasingly the Islamic State, and, and the dangers that they could pose um, on the African continent. And so um, essentially, you know, the, the, the focus on Africa was more of, I think, a hedging of bets that, you know, we need to have eyes on on these groups, we need to at least understand what they're doing. And this again is circa 2016, 2017. So even though there, there were not profound threats, perhaps to the extent that there are today emanating from the continent's Islamic State provinces, and one could say, actually, that's not true. In, in Libya, 2014 to 2016, this was <laughs> certainly concerning with the level of presence there. Um, but essentially, there was very little work being done on the Islamic State's provinces in a comparative perspective uh, on the African continent. So, you know, of course, people like Aaron Zellin uh, had, had been doing fantastic work on, on what was going on in Libya, uh, you know, from, from 2014 to 16. And at the same time, there were a number of scholars who were working on looking at what Boko Haram was doing, uh, the Islamic State's West Africa province was, was formerly Boko Haram. And so it's not accurate to say that, that nobody was looking at this. They certainly were. Uh, but the, the sort of impetus for writing a book about all of this is that the more um, my colleagues and I kind of tried to understand what was out there on the Islamic State's presence in Africa, the more we realized um, it, it, it the scholarship was sporadic. It was not comparative across the continent. And there was so sort of no overarching kind of pan-continental perspective to understand the extent to which uh, Islamic State provinces looked similar, acted similar, maintained similar relationships or not with civil society, uh, maintained similar relationships or not with the Islamic State Central. Uh, and so that was really the impetus, was to try to put together a book that would be useful for policymakers uh, and scholars to say, look, this is, this is to the best of our knowledge, based on open source reporting, the, the most kind of comprehensive view of what we know uh, about how these groups started, how they've evolved, and kind of what they look like today. And on that point, would you say that from the side of Islamic State Central, it's the long-lasting connections in the region that have amped up this, this focus on the African continent? So uh, I don't know if I would, I would say it like that, only because um, one of the, the main arguments of our book is that, in fact, most of these Islamic state provinces on the continent have really had pretty loose connections uh, to, to our knowledge from what we can see from the, you know, 
unclassified open source side uh, with the Islamic State Central. Uh, increasingly, there's, there's information coming to light post-2019. So again, our book ends at, in 2019. Uh, but post-2019, we've seen evidence of deeper relationships that we hadn't seen prior. Um, but really, I would say part of the reason or a large part of the reason why the Islamic State was able to find adherence and, and proliferate throughout the continent was really that um, what it had achieved in Iraq and Syria uh, between 2014 and 2017 um, was looked at by leaders of African insurgent groups um, and entire African insurgent groups themselves um, as being able to be leveraged for their own group benefit or for their own individual benefits. Um, and so the, the sort of attraction of these African insurgent groups uh, to pledging allegiance to the Islamic State Central was really their calculus, uh, as we argue, that by doing so, by pledging allegiance, and if accepted as a formal province, um, they would be able to achieve new things or get new things that, in the absence of such a pledge, they would not. Um, and so we, we discuss the, the sort of various rationales as to why um, either leaders of insurgent groups or entire insurgent groups themselves found utility uh, or, or usefulness in a, pledging allegiance to the Islamic State Central. So in some cases, uh, groups found it useful um, to pledge allegiance to the Islamic State Central after they lost um, their leaders. Um, they needed a sort of a guiding force. In other cases, uh, aspirant jihadi leaders wanted to um, bring their groups globally, right? They wanted to be looked at as more than just, uh, you know, another ragtag group of insurgents and so pledged allegiance. Um, in other cases, as we describe, leaders of these um, African insurgent groups wanted to break away from Al-Qaeda, uh, who had sort of dominated the jihadi landscape in their regions and, and essentially strike out on their own to make their own name. So uh, to answer your question, there were a number of rationales as to why these insurgents found uh, salience in the Islamic State ideology. But I don't think it would be accurate to say that um, their enduring presence has, because, has been because of um, necessarily close relationships with IS Central. And in the book, you talk about the life cycles of ISIS affiliates in Africa, and you base them on pledging allegiance to ISIS Central, so Bea. I was wondering if we could talk about that a bit and what these different life cycles are and what they mean for affiliates as well as jihad, the gr broader global jihad, I guess that's the best way of putting it. Sure. So, um, I, and, I, and I'll thank you, Chelsea, for sort of commending the organization uh, of the book because um, it, uh, Literary organization is a, is a topic that's near and dear to my heart, but particularly uh, when, when my co-authors and I were working on this book, one of the primary challenges we had was how do we tell the stories uh, of nine different insurgent groups that span, in many cases, or in all cases, well before 2014, because we're giving the prehistory of the groups that pledged allegiance. Um, so how do we cover spans of decades of history of nine different groups um, and not just be scattershot and, and be discussing sort of phenomena all over, um, you know, all over where every single chapter looks completely different and, and doesn't sort of have any coherence. And so one of our uh, 
sort of decisions editorially that I think worked well um, and gave some coherence to the histories of these groups that all in the end look quite different and experience quite different life cycles um, was to divide, as you said, Chelsea, the, their, their life cycles into the pre-buyout period, the buyout period, and, and the post-buyout period. So, of course, um, the pledging buyout is essentially the process where an insurgent group uh, in Africa or elsewhere pledges allegiance or fidelity to uh, the Islamic State Central or Al-Qaeda in, in other instances. And essentially, the, the pledge can either be accepted by the Islamic State Central and that insurgent group becomes a formal province. Um, it can be uh, the group can pledge. And the Islamic State Central can say, thanks for your pledge, but not confer provincial status. Or the third and least desirable option for these groups is that it pledges allegiance and then the Islamic State Central sort of says nothing. Um, all three of these scenarios happened uh, to various groups throughout, um, throughout the book. And so we thought that it was useful to use these periods of pre-buyout period, buyout period, and post-buyout period to help explain what the actual process was like for these groups to go from an insurgent group uh, to a formal Islamic State province. Um, and so essentially by, by dividing each history of each eventual um, Islamic State province in Africa into these, these periods, uh, we were able to show what the groups, what the insurgent groups looked like prior to pledging allegiance. Um, once they pledged allegiance, how long the, the buyout period was. In other words, um, in the buyout period, we're looking at sort of once you pledged, how long did it take the Islamic State Central to ultimately make you uh, a province? Uh, in, in some cases, it was, it was almost immediate. Uh, and in other cases, it, um, it, it took years. And so that sort of um, variation in the length of time to become an Islamic State province, we thought was quite an interesting sort of moment um, and, and, and in the life cycles of these groups. And then in the final uh, period, we really looked at after becoming an Islamic State province, um, once having the official Islamic State brand conferred upon them, how and in what ways, if at all, did these insurgent groups' behaviors change? And so really, in some senses, we were using, um, in a very loose way, uh, the, the, the branding as an Islamic State province on insurgent groups as a treatment effect to see if, uh, if it had any change on, on these groups' behaviors. Again, this is um, true political scientists are going to scoff at me for, <laughs> for suggesting that that's what we did, uh, particularly in a very qualitative way. But, but that's sort of the intuition behind why we chose those three periods. And choosing the three periods and looking at, like you said, this mass amount of data and affiliates, I mean, it's, it's a huge task. I would be wondering how to structure that and go about that as well, because it's, it's not a small task at all. Um, what did you find in your research that maybe we could say was most surprising or more, most interesting out of um, your findings? I mean, I, I don't want to give up give away too much because we would love people to read the book, sure. but yeah, what, what were your sort of aha moments? Sure. No, that's a great question. Um, 
And, and uh, as a plug for the book, it, it is available to purchase from, um, from the UK. Uh, it was released in, from our publishers in the UK in December 2021. It'll be available in the US uh, in, in March or early April 2022. So uh, certainly go buy the book. But um, no, the, the, uh, I think one of the primary... The, the primary thing that people ask us about this book and that I think dominates a lot of the conversations about the study of transnational jihad, particularly um, in, in sort of more peripheral satellite provinces is, to what extent does the Islamic State Central have command and control of any of its African provinces or, or any other province anywhere, right? So if we're talking about ISK or uh, you know, the Islamic State in Philippines, pick your, pick your province. Um, and so one of the things that, that you know, I've, I've alluded to is essentially that perhaps not profoundly surprising, but sort of surprising in how um, definitive perhaps the, the, the relationship was across provinces was really um, the extent to which in the open source, we really were not able to find uh, extensive, reliable information about um, the Islamic State's centrals, um, profound influence in, in, in the provinces. Um, you know, there, there were varying degrees of Islamic State central influence, particularly in Libya between 2014 and 2016, that this influence was, was profound. Um, likewise, in, in varying years in the Islamic State West Africa provinces life cycle, the Islamic State central was uh, pretty, pretty important, um, but again, exerted nothing approaching command and control of, of local activities. Um, but in many cases, really, uh, and in, in the case of most provinces, really had pretty minimal um, command and control, certainly, but even really communication in some instances. And so at least in the time period we were looking at, there's pretty little evidence, again, that we were able to find, and we might ultimately be refuted, uh, but of the Islamic State Central's real engagement at all uh, with its uh, province in Somalia, uh, its, its engagement with the Islamic State in Greater Sahara, uh, really limited uh, evidence uh, that, that that occurred. And so that was something that I think is one of the book's real contributions is to sort of stake a claim in this debate that for better or for worse kind of dominates a lot of the conversations, at least that I see going on among analysts of, of the sort of transnational jihadi movement and its impacts on local insurgent groups. And so essentially the takeaway is look, um, and we introduce a term to describe this relationship between Islamic State African provinces and the Islamic State Central. And we refer to these provinces as sovereign subordinates. And so this is a term that we created that we think captures the nature of this relationship. So on one hand, um, these African provinces are subordinate to the Islamic State Central. They've pledged allegiance. They are ostensibly acting uh, at its wishes. But on the other hand, and in praxis, these groups are really pretty sovereign. They essentially do what they want. Uh, they may be censured occasionally by the Islamic State Central, um, but they have to rely on themselves for funding, for recruiting, uh, for weapons provision. So to refer to this relationship between 
Islamic State African provinces and the Islamic State Central as sovereign subordinates, I think really captures this tension between, yes, they are, they are officially part of the international um, caliphate as imagined by IS Central, but in praxis, these are guys, uh, and they're almost always guys, basically just doing their own thing. And would you say like on that point that other than that affiliation, sort of the street cred of being affiliated with ISIS, like, do they do the affiliates benefit anything from being attached with the Islamic State Central locally? Um, I mean, I can argue internationally why, but from the local level, what might that look like? Sure. It, it's a great question. Um, so the answers vary. So to be clear, it, our research was able to find some instances of the Islamic State Central actually facilitating financial transfers, um, actually facilitating weapons transfers, um, often facilitate, not often, occasionally um, facilitating transfers of emissaries uh, from the Islamic State Central to help stand up or assist in uh, provinces uh, of the Islamic State in Africa. So to be clear, th there is evidence that it wasn't nearly reputational, right? That there was some material transfers that have occurred and that did occur between 2014 and 2019 between the Islamic State Central and some of the African provinces. In some African provinces, um, there was no evidence that we could find of, of material transfers. But um, Chelsea, I think you're absolutely right that the, that the primary benefit to these insurgent groups um, really was the branding of, of holding on to the Islamic State Central's name. Um, and, and, and to reference him again, because he's done such great work uh, and is just a phenomenal scholar, Aaron Zellin has a term uh, that I think was sort of just made in passing, but it's one uh, that, that I invoke all the time because I think it's so accurate. Um, he referred to the ability of Islamic State provinces around the world to invoke uh, what he called a nostalgia narrative of the Islamic State Central's one-time glories in Iraq and Syria. And so for, the, for these insurgent groups that have become provinces in Africa around, you know, around the continent, they're able to hearken back to the glories of this expansive um, physical caliphate that the Islamic State was able to um, engender uh, in Iraq and Syria. They're able to harken back to this one-time glory of what the future could hold. Uh, so in more practical terms, beyond sort of just this high-minded ideological, you know, socio-historical bookmark that they can reference, I think it's also important to, to note that <clears throat> the branding as an Islamic State entity was often a useful recruiting tool, right? It, it could bring people who were interested in a stricter version of um, jihad uh, into the fold because it was a sort of easy reference point to say, okay, I, I understand what you guys are about because I have an international analog, right? I kind of understand what, what, you're, what you're aiming for. Um, it, it brought recruits, it brought money, um, but we also discuss at length about the sort of double-edged nature of becoming an Islamic state province in Africa. And, and it, it, it maybe is all too intuitive, but it bears stating, um, as soon as you become an Islamic state 
province in Africa, you have a new target on your back uh, by your state's counterterrorism forces uh, and by the international community. And so sort of the, the starkest example that we, we present is uh, the case of the Islamic State in Algeria, where upon becoming uh, an Islamic State province, that move um, by the group in Algeria was really what set off in many uh, ways um, a really draconian CT campaign against the group, which was then pretty quickly decimated. And so it's, it's the case that um, it definitely thrusts you into the spotlight to become an Islamic state province in Africa. Groups gamble that there's gonna be more good than harm that's done. Uh, but at least again, in the case of Algeria, we've seen that uh, in fact, uh, it, it's a gamble that doesn't work out for some groups. And then on the flip side, I mean, I remember from my own research, there was a time that we saw so much media coming from the media wings of the Islamic State uh, promoting the different African provinces, especially specific ones. So from their perspective, is it once again just the, the media portrayal of being broad, like having this broad reach across the world? Um, so what does basically IS Central gain from having these affiliates? Sure. It's a great question and one that I think now more than ever, the Islamic State Central is thrilled to have the presence that it does on the African continent. Um, I, I don't think any of us should celebrate that, but I think that from the Islamic State Central's perspective, um, that's the case. Uh, there, there was uh, some interesting data uh, that's come out recently um, sort of doing a retrospective of the Islamic State's global presence in, in 2021. And so these are a few stats uh, about sort of Africa in the context of the Islamic State's global operations in, in 2021 that I think are sort of worth sharing. Um, so 22 states uh, in, in the world had attacks by the Islamic State in 2021. 14 of those 22 states were in Africa. Right. So approximately, um, you know, two thirds of states um, that had Islamic State attacks in the last year were African. OK, six of the top 10 uh, countries in the world with attacks uh, by the Islamic State were in Africa. So this was Nigeria, DRC, Egypt, Mozambique, Niger and Somalia. Uh, and, and Chelsea, I think to your, your question on the media side, one of the most striking uh, points from, from this recent study was that um, Nigeria uh, and, and the Islamic State's West Africa province had the most covers of al-Naba in 2021. So essentially, the Islamic State uh, is really looking towards Africa as a place where, though it's not centered, right? In other words, though its center of gravity is not African, uh, it's experiencing a lot of winds on the continent that show that even despite uh, the challenges uh, that it's been facing and it's sort of arguable global decline, although recent events might suggest a reversal, e even despite this global decline, it's still alive and kicking in Africa and it's, it's gaining ground uh, on the continent. So it's really the case that um, although the Islamic State is, is really primarily um, Middle Eastern in character, the African continent has been proving to be a very useful battlefield for it to show that not only is it not decimated, 
uh, as some may have thought, but it's but it's actually gaining ground. And I know you touched on recruiting somewhat just a little bit ago, but we did have a couple of um, questions from listeners, and one of them, actually two of them, were about recruiting. And you mentioned sort of the different regions and, and IS initially being more of a Mideast group and then expanding. And one of the questions was, um, how is IS recruiting in Africa and how successful are they compared to their recruitment in, say, Syria and Iraq, the Mideast? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, recruitment has occurred in, in various ways in various theaters. Um, one of the primary ways that the Islamic State's provinces initially gained recruits is when people who had been part of Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups um, sought to split away from those Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups and create new ones. So uh, sort of ironically, um, the Islamic State's, one of its primary sort of recruitment pools is from Al-Qaeda groups in the region. So for instance, uh, I think a a very clear example of this would be um, in the Islamic State in Somalia. The Islamic State's Somali province was created by a guy named Abdul Qadir Mumin, who was um, an ideologue in al-Shabaab, and he sort of had limits to his ascent within al-Shabaab, and he sought to break away and form his own group. And so he broke away with a, a small number of guys from al-Shabaab and, and formed his own uh, his own group, which has subsequently grown and, and found more recruits. Um, in so so al-Qaeda is is one sort of pool of recruits. Another sort of interesting pool of recruits, I think, is, is able to be seen in the Islamic State's West African province uh, in, in, the, in the Lake Chad Basin. And there I would just point to uh, basically the, the shift uh, in, in around 2018 away from sort of unconstrained violence that has typified the Islamic State's profiles of violence uh, to, to essentially what we describe in the book as being sort of a, a more reasonable, um, more civilian-centric version of the Islamic State. So we, we discuss a bit uh, from, from, the international, uh, from an international crisis group report that's, that's absolutely fantastic, really describing how the Islamic State has tried to, uh, at least in, in the West Africa province, really s- try to serve as a viable alternative uh, to to the Nigerian state, so it's it's uh, regulating uh, livestock traffic. It's setting price controls for fishing. It is encouraging uh, refugees to come back to this area of uh, that had been conflict prone. Uh, so, so that's sort of another way that the Islamic State is recruiting. Uh, s- some other uh, another sort of brief anecdote that I think is, is really fascinating. Uh, my, my co-author, Ryan O'Farrell, and another really great analyst of, um, of these topics, uh, Caleb Weiss, uh, recently described um, how in the Islamic State's, uh, the Islamic State Central Africa province, so this is the DRC one, uh, there was a, a guy who was arrested very recently uh, who had tried to join the Islamic State in Syria, but he was caught, he was repatriated back to Kenya, and at that point, uh, sort of being regionally aware that the Islamic State has a province in DRC, uh, went to 
uh, Eastern Congo, where he participated uh, in a beheading, uh, which is sort of uh, indicative of his and the larger group's uh, affinity for some of the tactics used uh, by IS Central. So it's sort of a long and winding uh, series of responses, uh, but hopefully that gives uh, the, the listener a sort of uh, insight into, in the, into the various sort of recruiting uh, phenomenon that, that we've seen. No, that's fantastic. And I, I really find the, um, the antidote of these affiliates basically stepping in where governments and, and countries can't and providing support and on the ground assistance. And I mean, we've even seen that with COVID-19. And I feel like that's such an important topic because it really does ingratiate community members to these groups that are finally providing things that they need, but that their actual government can't. So I mean, I feel like that's such an amazing recruitment tool and a tool to, like I said, gain favor. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to see that that's taking place as well in the African continent. Certainly. And then another question I had, because, and you also alluded to it a little bit ago, is that, you know, we have recently seen a bit of an uptick in ISIS activity in Syria and Iraq. And in your opinion, do you think this will mean anything for the affiliates in Africa? Like, will this affect them in any way, positive or negative? Um, or is it really probably not a big issue? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, you know, of course, the answer is we don't entirely know. Um, a, a few thoughts. One would be that um, as IS Central kind of gains back some spotlight in its you know, historical homeland, um, attention is likely to shift back, right, at least in its propaganda and media pieces, back to vaunting those wins uh, and, and sort of minimizing or at least not featuring uh, the wins that it's experiencing in Africa, precisely because it would rather, I think, um, vaunt what it's doing in its core rather than in sort of its more far-flung territories. Um, in terms of if it's really going to have a, a significant impact on, on African states, uh, excuse me, on African Islamic state provinces, I think all it can do is, is sort of give them heart that, in fact, this is a viable and useful and important enterprise and not to uh, you know, n not to give up the fight. Uh, you know, of course, the, the, the Taliban uh, takeover uh, of Afghanistan, we saw vaunted uh, by, by many uh, African jihadist groups as sort of being evidence that, yes, this is, this is not a fight to give up. And so to the extent that IS uh, Central is, is seeing a bit of a reemergence or resurgence, uh, I, I don't think there's any real harm uh, or re any real negative repercussions that, that would be likely to be seen in, in Africa. Actually, on that point, have we seen affiliates in the past that have pledged via to the group and then down the line they say, you know what, I'm good. We, we don't really need this anymore. Have we seen cases of that? No. Um, so, so that's one of the kind of interesting phenomena that we, we, we kind of go into the nitty gritty on, on some of these relationships. Um, it, it's sort of the case, and we make this point, it's sort of the case that once these groups pledge allegiance to the Islamic State Central in Africa, 
they get granted what we've kind of referred to as, as a jihadi tenure, right? So the relationship between IS Central and the provinces is, is sort of a fraught one for the Islamic State Central. And we, we discuss this in the conclusion of the book, um, but it, it's essentially the case that um, for the Islamic State Central, um, taking on these African provinces or taking on African insurgent groups as its provinces is sort of a risky prospect because some of the, uh, uh, sorry, we have an injury outside of my door here. Uh, it's a risky, it's a, it's a risky prospect because these groups can do things that embarrass IS Central. Uh, they can do things that contravene what IS Central would have them do. Uh, and so that said, there is no real punishment mechanism that the Islamic State Central has uh, to to essentially censure its provinces because disbanding them, for instance, uh, would look bad for the Islamic State Central. So we haven't seen the Islamic State Central disband them. Uh, but to your question, we also haven't seen groups that have um, decided to abandon the Islamic State Central's brand. And we think that that's probably the case for a few reasons. Number one, um, despite its current sort of downward swing and arguably upward, depending on when you're looking at things, uh, the Islamic State Central really is a powerful brand. And so these African groups continue to derive benefits, which were primarily reputational uh, from the Islamic State Central uh, because of what it once was, not because of what it currently is, but because of what it once was. So on that hand, they don't really have huge incentives to, to jump ship, as it were. Uh, another sort of point that we've made in the book is that um, precisely because the Islamic State Central was never deeply involved in many of their affairs, um, they never the African groups never found it particularly pernicious, as we have sort of seen, um, to engage with it. In other words, precisely because the Islamic State Central generally asked or demanded relatively little of the groups, um, it, it was a good relationship for them because they didn't really have to change so much of what they wanted to do or what they would have already done um, by being affiliated with it. Now, that's not to say that we won't see this. Um, it could very well be the case that uh, a group renounces its affiliation, but uh, to date, uh, we have not seen that be the case. We have another question from one of our listeners, and this has to do with counterterrorism. And uh, I'm assuming they mean counterterrorism related to IS, but they ask how successful is counterterrorism in the African region? Um, yes. This uh, is a massive stretch of continent. So <laughs> it probably very much depends on the different areas of Africa. Yes. No, it's, it's a great question, and I say this because this has been a, a topic that I've been writing about and, and doing a fair amount of, of, of sort of work on, both within the Combating Terrorism Center and sort of um, academically. I mean, I think, look, at the end of the day, and I've, I've alluded to her, Tricia Bacon and I wrote a, a piece sort of looking at the past 20 years of counterterrorism led by the U.S. on the African continent since 9-11. So we came out with this piece in the CTC Sentinel, which, which you alluded to, um, in September. And essentially, we said, uh, overall, um, it's, it's hard to claim that U.S. CT efforts 
in Africa have, have been a resounding success since 9-11. Uh, the number of the amount or the, the, the uh, sort of scale of jihadi violence um, has increased, we showed, uh, 17 fold from 2009 to 2021. So from 2009 to 2021, um, violence perpetrated by AQ or IS groups on the African continent increased 17 times. Um, so on that front, U.S., and sort of international CT efforts have not been profoundly successful. We've also seen the, the explosion of Salafi jihadi groups affiliated particularly with the Islamic State. Um, civilian deaths are at a new all-time high as per the African Center for Strategic Studies, uh, which just put out a report recently sort of saying we're, we're now at the highest number of casualties we've ever seen year over year. So on that front, it's hard to sort of argue that Counterterrorism, um, I'll say primarily kinetic counterterrorism efforts have, have been successful. Now, it's not to say that they've been entirely unsuccessful. We've seen counterterrorism efforts successfully dislodge um, groups affiliated with Al Qaeda and the Islamic State from strongholds. So, for instance, uh, the US uh, bombing uh, or assisted airstrikes in CERT in Libya in December 2016, helped dislodge the Islamic State from there. Uh, the, Islam, uh, the US has undertaken airstrikes that have killed uh, the, the one-time leader of Al-Shabaab. Uh, US counterterrorism efforts have been successful in operational terms, uh, but strategically, I think that it's, it's sort of hard to debate that uh, the U.S. and really global counterterrorism efforts in Africa um, would be rightfully considered uh, a resounding success. I'll also just conclude by saying the, the really tough reality and, and something that I think about a lot is despite their inefficacy, um, it, it is my opinion that to cease them entirely would also be profoundly uh, wrongheaded because to the extent that they're not achieving what we hope they would now, uh, in their absence, I think the situation on the ground would get significantly worse. So to slowly bring this discussion to a close, this is sort of a, a big, broad question. And of course, I mean, it is sort of one of these reading a crystal ball, but in your opinion, what do you think the future for IS in Africa is? Unfortunately, I think it's only going to maintain the status quo or grow. Uh, there's really nothing that I see or that the people that I talk to who are in, in various positions uh, around the world see as reversing the tide of the Islamic State in Africa. Um, I mentioned at the beginning of, of the podcast one of the really striking developments for me uh, over the past year has been uh, a United Nations report that came out this summer that noted that as compared to all world regions, uh, the African continent was for the, I believe it was the past six months from the time of the release of the report, the world region most affected by Salafi jihadist terrorists violence uh, leading to deaths. And so 
Africa is really in my mind, and I think a lot of other people who track this stuff closely's minds, really the new battleground and uh, a, a new center of gravity, if not the new center of gravity for the Salafi jihadist movement. And, and so to speak to you about the book, but also the topic more generally is really a chance to sort of um, raise some, some alarms to people who might not otherwise be tracking this, that, that uh, violence has never been worse on the African continent as relates to um, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. And, and really sadly, uh, and this is why we do what we do, really sadly, th th there look to be no trends of reversal. Uh, so uh, that's, that's my very unfortunate assessment of, of what's likely to come. Yes, and um, we always have heavy topics a lot of the time on the Loopcast, so we don't yeah, like yeah. to end on a, a super depressing note, um, even though some of the topics can be, unfortunately. There's a lot of stuff going on, sure. but um, we'd like to give our guests a moment to touch on something maybe that we just haven't had the time to touch on, or if you have a final thought that you'd like to add, so I'd like to hand over the floor to you for that. Oh, um I would just add, uh, thank you, Chelsea, for running this uh, podcast, which is such a tremendous resource for people in our field, and you do it so artfully and so professionally, and so many of us have gotten uh, so much from it. So I would turn it around on you and say thank you so much for, for what you've done for our community, and, and thank you for the opportunity uh, to, to join the illustrious cast of characters who've, who've come on. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot. It is yes. a labor of love that my co-producer Sina and I have done for, I think it's been like almost 10 years now, which is frightening, but um, thank you. And, and for our listeners, like I said, I highly recommend the book. Um, as Dr. Warner mentioned, it will be coming out in the States in a couple months if you can wait till then, or you can order it via the UK, but it's the Islamic State in Africa, the Emergence, Evolution, and Future of the Next Jihadist Battlefront. And once again, thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Warner. Thanks, Chelsea.